This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. I'm sometimes a part of conversations about what comedy does. Like, beyond making people laugh and the catharsis that goes along with it, which arguably is enough, what value does comedy have as a sort of social, political tool? And a lot can be debated, but what I come back to most often as stand-up, especially as a form that demands putting things into words to maximize audience laughter, is comedy can shine a light. Comedy can give people the vocabulary to see and talk about things. Which brings me to one of the absolute great jokes of the last decade, James Adomian's bit about gay villains. James Adomian, a stand-up comedian and master impressionist who can currently be heard on his impersonation-centered podcast, The Underculture, noticed a small trend in cartoons and popular culture that so many villains we are shown growing up are coded as gay and blew it up to the thousandth degree, to the point that anyone who heard the joke would never watch most cartoons from their childhood the same way again. James worked on the joke for a while, so the joke had many incarnations, with impressions of different gay villains being swapped in and out. But we will play the version from his 2015 album, Low Hanging Fruit. So, here is James Adomian and the many voices that live inside him. All right, uh, you know what? I, uh, I, I've talked about my life and good guys and bad guys, but one thing I am obsessed with is the archetype of the gay villain. It is my favorite thing in the world. That's why I wear my thin mustache and pointy beard, almost to consciously court the look of a gay villain because I'm fascinated. This tells you, hmm, facial grooming, something must be a foul. <laughs> Always the thin mustache, it's a common thing, and that, hmm, effeminate manner, you know? <laughs> like any Vincent Price movie, he's there and he's like, Welcome to my chamber of secrets. This is my curious associate, Raoul. Our relationship, our relationship need not be specified. <laughs> Raoul, fetch the murdering slippers. <laughs> or then, of course, all the Decepticons and Transformers, all of them, just screaming at each other like they're backstage at a drag show. Tron, shut up, stop, scream! That's the, that's the character's name. It couldn't be any more obvious what the message is. Starscream. Why aren't we deceiving the Autobots? Can it, Power Bottom? And Megatron sounds like a grand dame drag queen who's putting on her wig backstage. Like, watch and learn or you'll never work at Club Cybertron again. <laughs> Am I on? Oh, yes. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm a robot in disguise. <laughs> As a tiny gun. Shut it, bitch. If he knew homophobia was based on gay robots, it might fall apart overnight, like a Transformer toy would. There's endless examples of gay villains. Uh, one of my favorite ones is from the Jungle Book, uh, Ka the Python, who's like slithering around and he's like, Say now, look at this delicious man cub. And I'm like, wait a second, is Mowgli lost in the jungle or did he get lost on the Hollywood squares? 
And then, of course, there's Skeletor and He-Man always sitting on a perfectly appointed throne of skulls, already having died of AIDS. In 1985. As if to say, don't be like me! One of the best ones is the Riddler in Batman, who has like a masquerade ball mask and an entourage of people dressed exactly the same. And he has a big question mark on his torso. What's the biggest question about a man, Batman? Uh, I, I could go on and on. There's, uh, of course, they're not all boys. In The Little Mermaid, it is Ursula the Sea Witch. A big, fat, brassy dyke with a boy's haircut. Ew! And it's gray! I got big swinging titties and no babies on them. And I got a pussy with tentacles coming out of it. Those poor, unfortunate souls who have to have sex with me, right, ladies? And I'm like, no, every time I've ever met a woman like that in my real life, she's been awesome. That is the kind of woman who goes, you know what, the bar is closed, but I tell you what, lock the doors, one round on me. <laughs> I got eight tentacles on my pussy, so I got eight beer taps. We're all getting fucked up. You better lose your voice when you're partying with Ursula. <laughs> Gay people are not villains, but for some reason, you know, we get tarred with that. Uh, I guess I feel like we're just, we just have special powers. We're just like Jedi. We can be good or evil. Very special powers. But my favorite, my favorite gay villain is any time you've ever seen a Robin Hood movie, the Sheriff of Nottingham is always a fabulous fop cloaked in furs who's like, bring me this Robin of Roxley and make him, oh yes, make him kneel before me. Well, 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 well. There's always five wells. Robin Hood. You were so strong when you were shooting your arrows at the king's deer. But look at you now, here in chains. In my dungeon. Bravo. I feel you tense at my evil blowjob. But let's see your reaction when I enter you from the Sherwood Forest. Bring me the most painful condoms available. And then... And then, of course, the Sheriff of Nottingham irrationally always wants to steal Maid Marian for himself, Robin Hood's girlfriend. I will force her to marry me! That doesn't make sense. He's obviously a gay villain. I promise you, uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham just wants to know what it's like to have a fucking wedding. 
So we let that happen, and everybody's gonna be fine. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for coming out tonight. Thank you so much. I'm here with the, the comedian behind the joke you just heard, James Adomian. Thank you for being here. Wow, thank you. Uh, what was it like hearing that joke? What was the last time you've done it or heard it? I haven't done it in a while. And it was a bit that I rewrote a bunch, so there's like different versions of it, and that that was the the version from the album. I mean, to me, it's interesting that it was before gay marriage was legalized, yeah. and that was the big that was <laughs> that was the big call to action. At <laughs> yeah. the end, the sheriff of Nottingham, he just wanted a wedding. It's and it's, it's the end of the album. You're like, and now let's go do this. That was a big dismount. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, That's. it's really interesting to listen back to it. I haven't heard it in a long time. So I wanted to back up a little bit first before we talk about the specific jokes, just to give people some context on sort of your, all the things that went into having you be able to do this joke, which is, I should say, uh, I think masterful. It's like one of the great jokes of the tens or teens i don't know what we call it. uh 2012 so that's yeah that's the early teens the early teens so you've talked about growing up and doing impressions of teachers and people on the news but i wanted to get a sense of sort of what your relationship was uh to doing voices i was thinking that like when i was a teenager i i worked in food service and um i would sort of have to use spanish to talk to some people in the kitchen and then i would start thinking in spanglish like certain words I, my thought process was just sort of interwoven. So In the I, kitchen? Yeah, in the kitchen. So I was wondering if, was your relationship to impressions and voices sort of like a fluency where you're sort of like, you have conversations and like bits of phrases of different people always just come in when you see something? What's it sort of like? Um, my first thought was, I don't know if the X-Men Cyclops, when he doesn't have the glasses on, that he just like, everything is open to be impersonated. I'm always kind of echoing voices around that are interesting to me. I was probably m more obsessed with cartoons than most of my peers. And sometimes I've gone back and watched stuff and been like, oh, yeah, I grew up with that voice. Used to do it as a kid. Why not now? Yeah. Um, and then obviously there's impressions of other real life figures and stuff. But that bit in particular was uh, that was inspired by I think I first thought of it watching with friends stoned watching um robin hood prince of thieves mm -hmm. with the iconic alan rickman sheriff of nottingham and there's just the scene there's a there's so many versions of that gay villains bit there's like a longer version of the sheriff and yeah. there, he had his own the sheriff character had his own life yes when i got tired of doing the stand-up he bit, had a spin-off yeah, yeah yes he's a spin-off i used to do him as a character too but there's a scene i think i referred to in some other version of that joke where the sheriff of nottingham is like kill the children yes <laughs> that, that i was gonna say there's an earlier version where you kill mention it's alan rickman's version yes and i used to yes i used to i uh i mean plenty of times i credited him. yeah um, but yes, there was a, and what a delicious performance. What, uh, iconic, perhaps my favorite, that's, I, I would say certainly that's my favorite Alan Rickman yeah. performance. And I'm, that's up there with like Die Hard and, yeah. um, Galaxy Quest. But, um, but like a mediocre movie, A plus performance. <laughs> yeah. And, um, he makes the movie as the Sheriff of Nottingham. And obviously, there is a gay villain trope there, and you wonder, where does this come from? 
even in a celebrated performance yeah. like that. And so I wanted to, I started playing with it, and this is probably... This For is, some context, where were you sort of in your career as sort of like doing characters? Stand, like where, you know, were you already transitioning from being a person who's doing sort of sketch to doing characters on stage? Or do you- uh, This is, this is, I guess the bit, I, I, I started coming up with this bit in 2010, uh, right after a rock bottom period. I had been doing uh, characters in sketch comedy um, at the Groundlings and at UCB. And then I had started doing stand-up because I didn't continue on at the Groundlings. I suddenly had a lot more time. Yeah. In like a workaholic sense, like I was like doing almost 30 shows a month, you know. Yeah. And, and they were like, oh, I have more time. So I'll do stand-up. And so I sort of brought the sensibility of the ear for sketch comedy I brought into stand-up. So a lot of what you would call act-outs, which to me are just little sketches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then out of nowhere, got, I got uh, on Last Comic Standing and through the process of that. And I had uh, I had auditioned for Last Comic Standing the hard way before, standing <laughs> out in the long line yeah, yeah, and yeah. stuff. And I thought, ah, oh, this is uh, another waste of time. And the second time it worked. Yeah. And uh and they liked me and I did I knew I knew the I knew the judges. I knew yeah. the judges from doing comedy. And so that was a period of my life where it was like suddenly I'd come from this weird sort of chaotic disaster and a personal situation. I, I, I had come out on stage. I had been out of the closet for years, but then I decided to one of the things that I was going to do from the very beginning in stand up was to be gay, which you can't really do if you're always in character. Yeah. No one cares. <laughs> um, you can't be like in character and be like, just side note, I'm I'm being I'm the person not in character. Right. Now, you do see me for fun as a performer squeezing gay material into uh, sure. characters to make it fun for me. Yeah. So a lot of my characters, even if they're straight, have had something gay in their lives because sure. Because that's just more fun, and that's also the reference point that I have. I, I you know, I was look, I, I was, I was suddenly on Last Comic Standing, uh, so I had to generate a bunch of material because it's a process is kind of long and drawn yeah. out. It's like a three month, four month process. So I'm like, suddenly, I'm just doing stand up shows all the time, looking for new jokes, and specifically looking for new jokes to be gay. In. Yeah. And then I saw that movie, and I was like, that's it, gay villains. <laughs> and I'd never. I'd never pieced it together before. Yeah. And it was just always something where I'm like, holy shit, this is just a trope that's been out there that everyone's supposed to get, just, you're supposed to accept it and be, yeah. and there's so many examples that were tried out at early versions of the joke and then later on theirs. I mean, and people would always be like, what about Jafar in Aladdin? I'm like, I know he's in, he didn't make the cut for the album, but he was in an early version of it. Jafar, there's Scar from the Lion King. There's all kinds of minor villain, gay villain characters and like TV cartoons and stuff. Once you just saw the thing and it was almost like, you know, seeing the matrix or whatever, you're like, did you immediately start brainstorming? You're like, who it this? was <laughs> it was like the Matrix. It was like I saw I saw Alan Rickman kill the children, and then it was like do 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 data data flopping yeah. down the screen. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just kind of was joking about it. The voice was in my head, and then you know, then I had a stand up show the next night, the next night after that. So I, I just started talking about it, and this. In those days, too, um, uh, my stand-up act was way looser and more experimental because I didn't have any fans. I just had um, audiences of my peers and drunk people that would listen. So 
I was just kind of a um, free association, write it on stage, come up like come up with the basic idea and then like plow through it on stage and make it work through energy and yeah. improvised wit in the moment. And so that's how it was written. It was yeah. written experimentally um, in like bar shows in L.A. and New York. Uh, Did you do any research? Had you been familiar with? Clifton Webb, who I had doing research for this, I guess Clifton Webb was like the person who codified the idea of gay villains. Didn't know. Never heard that until now. Yeah. It's a guy, Clifton Webb, in is the movie Lorik. I just, there was this movie, um, Do I Sound Gay? Oh, yes. That came out after yeah, my well, bet. Yeah, well after. And they did not, here's how great of a promoter I am. They had no idea that my bit had existed. Yeah. That's how, that's the cultural impact I had. So, Writing on stage, what sort of, when you say you go up with an idea, do you sort of, oh, you have a voice and you're like, well, his thing will be this. And you just sort of are talking for like 10, you might do 10 minutes of Sheriff and then be like, how do you then remember? Well, a, uh, okay. If you're doing a stand-up bit, one one joke premise doesn't want to last much longer than yeah. five minutes. I feel like a five-minute bit is a long bit in a stand-up set, yeah. whether you have a 10-minute set or an hour. If I'm doing the Sheriff of Nottingham in character, it can go a little bit longer because then you, that's the whole bit. Yeah. So the whole reason for you to be on stage is that you're, well, when I did it, I'd be like, I'm looking for Robin Hood. Yeah. Terrorize the audience looking for Robin Hood. <laughs> I, I think obviously there's other jokes that you're going to do in a stand-up set. Um, and so I would, I, I, it kind of naturally gravitated towards being the closer. Yeah. Because it was hard to follow. Yeah. So the jokes that are hard for myself to follow myself uh, tend to turn into closers. Are you tape recording? Or are you just sort of remem remembering? Do you eventually uh, sort of write it down, uh, the good part? I do occasionally record sets, but I almost never listen to them. Uh, I don't write the jokes out like prose or on a page. I write them out after a good, particularly good set where I'm trying new material. I will turn the note card over and write out what was good on the back of it. And then every time I, I always write my sets out. That's how I remember what to do. Yeah. I look, I go from the last show and I write it on a new note card. And if it's a new bit, it'll have like a lot of bullet points that I have to hit. Yeah. And as I know it better and better, that shrinks because I can just, I can remind myself with just a few words what it is. Yeah. So when I used to write out the gay villains bit, it was literally just like, it would be like, Gay villains, <laughs> Transformers, Jungle Book, Ursula, yeah. Sheriff. Yeah. After I've been doing it for a couple of years, it was my closer on the road. So that after a while, I was, at the end of the note card, it just says gay villains. Yeah. And then it's, and then you know I would experiment sometimes. If it was a late night crowd, of a fun crowd, if I had a couple of drinks, you know, suddenly a, a few other gay villains might show yeah. up. It's like, and also that's so funny that you're like. And I, you, you have so many examples you can just pull from. I emphasize more the cartoon ones because I didn't want to sit there teaching a film history class on stage. Yeah. Uh, Vincent Price, Vincent Price makes it in with the ascot and everything. And there's all, there's also there were plenty of cartoons that didn't make it in. Yeah, um, the, the one that I saw a clip of there, it starts with Roman emperors, snidely whiplash. Oh yeah, that makes sense. I, um, uh, Roman the, emperors. Ro it started with you going. There's this documentary or TV show about Roman emperors, and there's something about how these Roman emperors. All this is a, a this is a YouTube version. There's of a it? you did it a meltdown in 2011 or whatever. Wow. And yes. That, and yes. Where the emperor of Rome is always like, 
Bring me Tiberius. Bring him to me. Why isn't he here? I've got him pieces. All I hear you saying is things that aren't the words Tiberius is here. Kill another slave. And then Gummy Bears was the other one. And that was like, that was tiptoeing into a world of obscurity because I'm like, Gummy Bears, I feel like the, the cartoon is very specific to my age and one year plus or minus. And I'm like, anyone younger, anyone older, it was, I don't feel like it was more than a um, late Gen X, early millennial phenomenon. Yeah. So it's hard. I was just like, there's bigger... Bigger gay villains to fry. Yes, yes. So uh, I want to go through sort of the album version and, and see the sort of as much you can remember from that part. So it starts off with you pointing out that uh, you're obsessed with this and you have you have the facial hair yourself as a sort of honor. Yes. Do you keep that facial hair for years? Be like, I got this bit. It's my closer. I need to live a life where I have this facial hair choice. Uh, you don't like you don't have it currently. It, the, it was the other way around. Yeah. It was the it was the um. The egg came before the check-in. Yeah. I started wearing a mustache because I liked the way it looked. I guess it was 2010 where I just, or somewhere around then, where I started wearing a mustache, and then I'd always have to shave it for various, playing various parts yeah. that I'd have to do. So I started drawing it on. I knew how to draw it on because I'd drawn it on to play Vincent Price before. <laughs> yeah. And so, but I started just doing it in real life. So I started, people thought I was insane. And I was doing... um I was like microdosing that summer. Sure. <laughs> uh, very creative, uh, very I ca- very um, sort of like a bellwether year in my life. There was a little bit of microdosing. There was a lot of comedy. And I was drawing my mustaches on when I couldn't grow them out. And so people were like, I've heard in years since my friends be like, when I first met you, you had a mustache drawn on your face. And I was like, who is this lunatic? Um, so, yeah, I mean, my onstage persona sort of matches my offstage life and they they play games with each other. <laughs> sure. So the next part is Vincent Price, which you had mentioned you had done before. Since this is the most impression-y impression, I want to talk a little bit about sort of how the mechanics of how you create an impression as much as you're willing to. How, Like for someone like Vincent Price or just in general, does it start – how does it start? Do you sort of just hear the person and then you, your brain goes, I think I can do it? Do yes. You... I loved Vincent Price. And I – Remember him in The Great Mouse Detective? I remember he would be on a lot of the uh, PBS horror movies that I would watch at the age of eight or nine. And also, I was a child at his tail end of his career. So he would, he was, uh, he really made the rounds as a lot of very savvy um, actors do at the end of their career where they get themselves in on the punchline about themselves. So his last act was basically making fun of himself sure. on Scooby-Doo, on a lot of commercials, on any car. He like guested on all kinds of cartoons, the Muppets and yeah. stuff. But he, I remember vividly the Mildew, the Tylex commercials from the late 80s where he was like, you know, it was in the style of an old horror movie. And he was like, Mildew, horrible Mildew stains. Tylex brand tile cleaners <laughs> kills mildew dead. And I used to do that as a child. Oh, wow. You, you know, me and my brothers and my cousins, we would, and friends, we would talk back to the TV. If it was funny, we would talk back to the TV. 
Yeah. We would talk talk back after the after we were not watching TV anymore. We'd be talking about it at dinner, talking about it at breakfast, doing jokes about it. Uh, yeah, Vincent Price was just sort of always with me. And is that is that ultimately <laughs> like, a, like a Jesus? Yeah, in the yeah. Footsteps, footsteps story. What's it? Uh, is that ultimately? I was there. I was there <laughs> carrying you to your grave. Is that ultimately how impressions have s- still worked for you as you continue? To, is it sort of like you see it, you sort of like talked back to it? You know, are you starting? Do you look for a hook? Do you sort of look for a, a way in? Um, is it outside in? Inside? It makes it's whatever makes a big impression on me. Yeah, I don't do impressions of boring people that I find boring. I mean, if I'm going to do impression of a boring person, it's gonna it's gonna it's because that they've it's because they've been forced on me, like a, a boring politician or something, and then you can zero in on how boring they are. Yes. And I've done more of that as a voiceover artist where someone assigns me an impression. Yeah. And I go, okay, all right, what this is a boring person. That's the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but when it when left to my own devices, yeah. it's mostly people who have made a profound impact on my memory with their voice and their mannerisms and their b- 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 general style, I guess. Yeah. And their opinions and their worldview. Like, is it a is like is it a very interesting bad person a very interesting good person in in variations on that you know is it like the, the, the gay villains thing it bothers me as soon as i realized that it, it bothered me but i also thought it was hilarious yeah and so i sort of I, I just wanted to live in that world for a minute and be like what's wrong with this but why is it so fun what is sort of your relationship when it's a person you like and you're doing the impression sort of out of sort of amount of respect or or love in the imitation is this most sincere form of flattery versus a person you hate, you know, like uh-huh. a person from these gay villains who you sort of imbue with so much love versus Sebastian Gorka or whatever. Yes. Uh, generally, what you should look for if you're interested yeah. is whether the comedian drew blood or not. Mm-hmm. If you if you drew blood, if you went for the jugular, if you're clearly making fun of someone for being a war criminal or a psychopathic murderer or whatever, that generally means that you don't really like the person. Yeah. And if it's somebody where you're kind of making them look like, okay, my Bernie Sanders impression, look, look I was born slightly before the events of Pearl Harbor, just before Pearl Harbor, when that attack occurred. I issued a statement condemning those attacks. <laughs> it ju- it just comes off that he's obsessed with numbers. He's obsessed with data. He uh, is a, he's a policy wonk. Yeah, uh, he's very focused on specific policy, and he's old. <laughs> yeah. uh, his references are uh, somewhere between the 1930s and the 1960s or 70s. There's no moral failing. And, and I, well, I do disagree with Bernie about a couple of things, and I've made fun, of, I've clowned him for that. Yeah, and I think you capture. That he's a person who wants to be a president, which yes. I think is a weird thing for a person to want. That is always that is always the 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 gift that a famous person or a prominent person cannot help but give a comedian is there's something insane <laughs> about putting yourself forward yeah. in order to be famous or to be heard. And so anyone, and this is, you know, to, for me to say this, this is a, this is something uh, could be a self-critique as well, or any comedian can say this about themselves, but there is something insane about running for president. 
presenting some piece of entertainment to the yeah. public or doing whatever. voices in front of people yes. 30 nights a week. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So that there's all that's always a way in. Yeah. Like what wh- who is this? <laughs> who who is this person talking to all of us? So the Transformers when you when you lacked onto it, you immediately go, that's a scene that's at the back of a drag show. I was the generation that cried when Optimus Prime died in Transformers the movie. And um, like uh, Transformers was like probably the most important thing. And so they're like gods to me. Yeah. They're like, they're almost like real figures that are like minor deities in a religion that I have. They're like mythological figures. Yes. I know more about them than I know about actual Greek mythological characters and stuff. And there was a longer bit of the Transformers thing too, where I I contrasted it with uh, the Autobots. Oh, no. The the Decepticons, they don't cooperate. Yeah. There and there, there is a and I, I think the I think this version of it was like there's a distinct message as if America's dads got together and we're like uh, the Council of America's dads we're like all right we got this new toy cartoon engine from Japan all right we're gonna have to do some voiceovers make the bad guys sound like uh, the drag queens I guess <laughs> gays drag queens the good guys they're gonna sound like baseball players got it tough guys baseball players okay good dads are done. <laughs> And that that was like a, just a culturally decided yeah. because it does feel that way. And it is a gross exaggeration to say that America's dads would get together sure, and do yeah. that. However, there are a lot of things in the culture that are the result of uh, people pleasing America's dads. Yes. And the people who make those decisions are likely dad type people. Yes. Or <laughs> scared of getting letters from those yes. people. And so there are all kinds there are all kinds of decisions that are not consciously made but are subconsciously made and you go well we need a bad guy the bad the, who can oh well um 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 uh, but I like that he's gay <laughs> and 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 a lot of it's done as an homage to some earlier gay villain yeah a, a lot of it's done just because it's a no one's going to argue with you until yeah. recently yeah no one's going to argue with you about making a bad guy gay I think there's very little actual malice. Yeah, I think it's. I think it was mostly laziness. Yeah, uh, or uh, somewhere living somewhere between homage and lazy, like, which is where what a trope is. Yeah, and they're also like, who has fun? Who are who are men that have funny voices? Oh, the gay men. Yeah, and the argument has been made, and I don't. I don't delve too much into this because I don't think. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not an academic, so it's not my job to like parse the parse the absolute truth of yeah. what um what gay villains are but um I, there is something to be said for the fact that the villains have more fun and people I like the gay villains and it's yeah. presented as this alternative track I, 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 I don't like that anytime you ever saw a character yes. that was coded gay growing up uh, that they were always a bad guy. It's almost like you, as a, a a young gay child, you like these characters, right? So it's like they were presented as villains, but they're ah, yes. also coded as gay. And you, as a gay kid, were like either you and even um, uh, Vincent Price. You you saw something in this person. Yeah, it's supposed to be a bad guy. I liked it, and then later on realized like what was this thing that I was responding to? Because in some ways. 
I mean, you could think about it. You could think about it for forever. Yeah. You could think about it for hours. You could think about it on a full ass plane ride. Like, what is it? What are? What is it when you hold up a character as a hero with certain traits and be like, and you're telling children and you're telling other adults, be like this hero. Yeah. And it, you have to examine then movie to movie, book to book, TV show to TV show, story to story, and. In general, overall, in the larger culture, what are you telling us is, quote-unquote, good guy characteristics? And what are you telling us is, quote-unquote, bad guy uh, characteristics? And there are straight and or masculine bad guys, but there are almost no feminine and or gay male uh, good guys yes. until recently until very very recently. very recently till after this joke existed probably probably right? probably maybe i had some impact on the story too <laughs> yeah i think so um the next part is uh ka says his name ka the from the jungle book ka the python i also there's a longer bit of that where i'm like look in the Rud- in the rudyard kipling book the python does not have uh truman capote voice <laughs> yeah well they're but like in the cartoon she sure as shit does they're like, oh, S- it is snakes don't talk, but they're like, oh, of course it would lisp, and and because it's evil, it'd be like, what what is this? Who are the sneakiest pe- people Look in the this, in the garden? And I believe that's Sterling Holloway. Is that his name? God damn it, he's the guy who did Winnie the Pooh. I think that's him, Sterling Hathaway. I forget the iconic old Disney yeah. character actor. And I mean, what a great performance! What a great character! I loved it. As a child, I loved that entire movie from start to finish. I saw Jungle Book in the theater three times when I was three years old. When it, you know they used to run Disney movies yeah. in reruns, I demanded to see it thrice. I loved that movie so much. And then you look back on it and you're like, "Wow, I what what?" And I, I, obviously, I love the friendship of Baloo yeah. and Mowgli, and yeah. I love all the other characters too. And I love. Uh, and there's, uh, believe me, there's plenty that's problematic about that movie. <laughs> sure, yeah. But um, how interesting that a character like Ka the Python that I loved then as a child and still love now, I could watch the Jungle Book on an airplane and cry yeah. and laugh and sing along with it. A character that I've re- re- responded to yeah. uh, like it's, uh, what a fascinating character to engage with. And yet, why is that story always being told to me? Yeah. That... If there's an effeminate character, he's trying to devour a child. Yeah. Uh, if there's a gay character, he's he's got all kinds of other uh, um, motives, and- motives and ulterior pro- problems, and he's not a good team player. And he's treacherous. I don't remember if in the in the live action version, if the snake was coded in the same way. I, I did see the live action Jungle Book. I don't remember how Ka was portrayed. I think yeah. he was portrayed more like a, if I recall. Just kind of like a generically demonic uh, yeah. force from the jungle or something. I did not see the new Lion King. Uh, yeah, there were pictures of Scar, and I had a, a gay friend was like, "This portrayal of Scar is homophobic already, just because it is." Oh no, erasure because it's they're a, erasing the gay. I think so. There is a bit of like, there's people that want the gay villain. Well, it's like at least there's a gay character in this movie now. That is also true. And I'm very keenly aware being a gay actor and a gay performer and having a lot of friends of mine who are also gay actors and gay performers who are undeniably funnier and more talented than me. And you see the invisible walls that are just sort of wheeled into place and then sort of like 
closed in around people's careers just because they are gay and or effeminate and or openly gay. Some combination of those things. And again, it is the silent judgments of people who think it's their business that you should not be a role model. Yeah. And my point is that we artificially not only hold back gay art and gay performers, we actually held up for a long time tropes and narratives that they were always the bad guys yeah. and that they were always disgusting and that if they kissed anyone of their same gender, they would die. <laughs> Um, Skeletor, you go from Disney to the darkest joke of the bit, which is Skeletor, who has already died of AIDS as it is yeah. 1985. Yeah, I feel like actually that uh, that particular joke inside the gay villains bit did not last long after that recording. And I frankly wish I'd taken it out. Yeah. It's not a joke that I would make now. Although a lot of people, a lot of people appreciate how that I went into a dark territory because sometimes a very dark joke makes people laugh about something that's very scary. Yeah. But I just, I mean, there's a little bit of me at the age of 32 not uh, being savvy or wise enough to have, I could have just tweaked it and told it a little bit better. Yeah. What, um, what about it? It's a little shocking. It's, um, uh, it's, I, there's an observation there that's true. That's I mean, I just don't know if it was worth going there. Yeah. I will say this. I mean, bad, like Skeletor is, I mean, Skeletor, He-Man, in both the live action movie and live action movie, he's whipping He-Man in chains and stuff. And the message is, uh-oh, if you're in a world where gay stuff is happening, then He-Man is has been chained up by Skeletor. <laughs> that's what you should remember for the rest of your life. It gets a reaction, but it's not necessarily laughs in the same way it's that oh yeah it's though and that was something that maybe you had worked better on different nights or something yeah certainly not the place to end begin or end the bit yeah he-man is a very interesting cartoon in and of itself it's it's if you ever go back and watch it it's bad sure <laughs> there's not much world building uh skeletor is definitely a gay villain that's obviously at the same time coded as death itself it's not the first time it's happened either, where they're like, gay equals death. Uh, a lot of movie, a lot of countries will ban a representation of uh, any gay characters in a movie unless they die. Unless, the, unless a gay character dies or experiences some other great misfortune, as if to tell the audience. Literally, this is coded into a lot of countries' laws about movies. Uh, If there's a gay character, he must die or fail or experience some kind of other disaster in a tragedy uh, to show the audience that it is not the right way to go. And that is explicitly laid out as a law. I think in our country, it's um, just sort of implied. Um, Unless there's some dusty book in the studio vaults where they're like, refer to the old book of tropes. The next part is the Riddler, which is I've seen this. I've seen you perform this around the time you're doing it. I've seen you perform this joke. I did not remember in the Riddler one in New York, and I think I've seen you do it in L.A. But it, oh, meltdown! It was just sort of, but uh, yeah, the, the Riddler, Riddler part a, I totally forgot. The Riddler it's was so a, funny. The Riddler is not supposed to be a paragon of masculinity. No, <laughs> he's supposed to defeat. Uh, he's supposed to defeat Batman or try to defeat Batman through like. Um, treacherous left-handed yeah. games that a real man wouldn't do. Yeah. 
Um, like he doesn't even he doesn't even fight Batman. He's just trying to trick him. Yes, he's trying to trick him into fucking him. <laughs> um, Ursula, there's so much joy in your your inhabiting of this person. It, are they based on a specific person that you're like everyone I know that's like Ursula? Are there specific Ursula? Everyone, that he, everyone has everyone I know has a theory. I have the different groups of friends have different theories that it was that the most compelling one was that it was a reference to Rebecca Trent, the owner of the Creek in the Cave, who was a good, great friend of mine. And I was hanging out a lot there when Ursula entered the gay villains bit in New York, but she's not, she's, she, I don't know. Well, I, I don't want to speak for Rebecca and her sexuality. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. If, I don't know if she comfortably falls into the gay villains uh, <laughs> milieu. But um, yes, and it was also pointed out to me that I was wrong. Uh, it was pointed out to me that, and I know this, uh, Ursula was um, not modeled after a lesbian, but after Divine. Yeah, Ursula, the sea witch from Little Mermaid, was literally actually um, a Divine. Drag, yeah, yeah. Uh, not drag, but a. Uh... From when, the yeah, Roger Waters yeah, movies, yeah. that still a gay villain reinforces. Yeah, yeah. either <laughs> way, gay villain. I I also wanted, I wanted something in the bit that wasn't just me going boy 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 yeah. boy, boy boy boy, and I I, I th- maybe I'm stretching a little bit to be like ah Ursula's. I think it expands a lesbian, now, but it does expand. I was think there's a rhythm to it that it, it's a, a joke where ultimately like lists examples. And now here's an example where this feels different. It also sort it, of they like, don't just do this to boys. Yeah, and it's and as a boy yourself, uh, it it expands the universe where it's like this is not a th- me thing. There's like this is happening to also the the female gay villains of real life. I think it's just interesting to see um, Ursula does have short hair. She's her own boss. Like she yeah. has power without a man. She has like she has like a matriarchal power in her quote unquote evil undersea. Yeah, and um, and she's a sea witch. You know the 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 vilification of uh, uh, witches is a yeah. completely other, a different topic. That's the out some that's beyond. I shouldn't even be allowed. I'm I'm interested in hearing what other people have to say about sure. that. The poor witches. I like witches. I like witches, and I think they've gotten a bad rap, obviously, kind of like gay people. Sure. Yeah, I mean, definitely, in so much as these gay villains contrast an idea of masculinity, Ursula contrasts an idea of what women are supposed to be like. Yep, yep. I think I think it certainly does. I think it certainly does, and it's a watch out for the message. Yeah, and it's so over the top. And, you know, like, it's not just pitting women against each other. It's pitting... The idea of what women should be to such an extreme extent of like Ariel as this like sort of perfect being and so virginal and so an idea. And then as you as we talk about all these people, like Ursula is a more interesting character, is a more a much more fun character. People love Ursula. I don't know people's relationship to Ariel. Yes, it is. is, And that brings up an interesting thing that with gay villains or any kind of vilification, if you get a good enough actor, good enough artists in a cartoon bringing this character to life. People are going to imprint on it, even if it's presented as a villain, and go like, I, "Actually, I want to. I'm fine. I want to be that." You talking made me think about how now, in sort of in the time since, there are characters who, I was, I was thinking specifically of the the ice dragon from Game of Thrones. You watch Game of Thrones when, yeah, yeah. So when that character revealed itself, immediately, like Babadook too. Like the, we are now coding characters that aren't gay villains in a traditional sense but have a certain sort of status, and then we have now queer, queered those because of a history, right? People have, people are like, Bob Duke's a gay icon, Ice Dragon is a gay uh-huh. icon. 
And it's interesting that we it's it's like this joke, I think, sort of paved way of taking it back. Well, I'm not the first to do no. it. Um I'm not the first to do it. I think people have uh I think people have celebrated villains. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that actors love to play villains. They're fun parts. And you don't have the burden of carrying the virtue of the story. Yeah, you don't have the bur- you have the, you don't have the bur- the burden of like fighting for the correct truth or whatever. A villain can be bad, and it's liberating. And I've found this as an actor myself. When I play a bad guy, the audience loves it. Yeah, and you don't have to. If I'm talking, if I'm doing a stand-up show as myself, there, in addition to being funny, there is a a bit of work you have to do as a. A, a circus ringleader, yeah. Where you are also, you are also like, you are also like uh, the voice of reason, yeah. and you don't always have to be right, and the audience doesn't always have to agree with you, but you have to make a choice as an act. I think for stand up, where if, if you're whether you're going to be a bad boy, bad guy, mm-hmm. like. I think someone who does it the very best is Anthony Jeselnik. Yeah. Where you're not supposed to like Jeselnik. Yes. Everywhere you're watching him the whole time. Yes. The whole act is, I'm wrong. Yes. I'm bad. Can you believe I made you laugh at that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you have to be like, I'm basically right, right? Yeah. And you have to kind of decide that before you get on stage. And if you are in a character that's not you, it's a a different game. It's a different setting. You can be bad and be a monster. And they might laugh because they know that it's not you. They know that you're making fun of somebody. So it ends with Sheriff from Nottingham, which, as we said, had a spinoff of sorts in your act. When you do someone like that, how in it are you? Well, it's different contexts. Yeah. Is it a talk show? Is it a live podcast? Is it a panel show where there's other people on stage to play off with? That makes it a little easier. Is it just me doing a character in a 10-minute spot on a larger stand-up show where everyone else is doing stand-up or is it a sketch in a sketch show? All those things are factors. Generally speaking, I'm not going to do a character at a comedy show unless I am comfortable blabbering for five minutes straight by myself or with the audience doing crowd work for five to 10 minutes. Or if there's other people on the stage that are bantering back and forth, like on a talk show format, or uh, or something like that that I can, you know, the sheriff of Nottingham. It, 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 it you might run thin uh, doing the same bit for longer than five, maybe seven, maybe ten minutes. Because there's ultimately one game or so that you have to. You, if you keep on hitting people, like oh, I know the thing that I've seen it, I've seen it, I've yeah. seen it. But if it's the sheriff of Nottingham at a live podcast on a panel show, at UCB or something, then. Somebody brings up something else, suddenly the sheriff has an opinion on it. Yeah. And that's fun. Once you've defined a clear enough opinion and worldview for a character, yeah, they can respond to anything. Do you feel like, especially, you can't see because this is an audio, but when you do live, do you feel like you break a little bit? Do you smile? Do you feel like you let the audience in? Are you, in terms of, I think there's people that- When? When you're performing, do you feel like there's, there's certain people who do characters or when they they- let the audience, they, they're just sort of a little bit detached from it or they're fully in it. Uh, I, I attempt to commit. I get annoyed. I mean, like a lot of people, I get annoyed when um, somebody's making the breaking the is the thing you're supposed yeah. to laugh at. I get that that's annoying and I, I don't do that. I try not to do that. I don't like 
put up great barriers to stop myself. I don't like, I'm not like, it's not a great sin if I break on stage and laugh at my own joke or somebody yeah. else's joke. I try not to. Yeah. Depending on the audience and who I'm on stage with and how many drinks are going around, sure. it's going to come out differently. Yeah. I don't mind, because if I'm coming up with something in the moment, it might make me laugh. Yeah. I don't mind if it happens. I don't think it's, I think it's probably lazy to rely on it. Yeah. And I think it's uh, cynical to plan on it. So I don't do that. So uh, you record the album, I believe or so, and then I imagine you're like, okay, maybe the joke's done, I'll do it. And then Skyfall comes out. You saw this. I had to bring it back. Uh, Sky, I was like, I was like, I got to get done with this gay villains <laughs> bit. I've been doing it for like two and a half years or something. And then Skyfall came out. And Skyfall was a great James Bond movie, but like most or all James Bond movies, weird, bad politics. Yeah. That are in the service of a, mm, let's face it, a violence empire and its assassins. Yeah. <laughs> so it was very interesting to see over the years. This is a top. This is a, I mean, this is a completely different discussion of like what what kinds of people and what kinds of business practices. Yeah. Uh, personalities and businesses and and cultural movements get get turned into Bond villains. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, it's the one that were hackers must be hackers of the great ill. That, that, yeah, that, that, yeah. It, basically, Skyfall has Javier Bardem as um, it's Julian Assange. It's gay Assange. Yeah, and that was my bit. That was what I saw that, and I was like, they're just doing gay. They're trying to make WikiLeaks look like a Bond, like Spectre. They're trying to turn WikiLeaks into Spectre. They're trying to turn Julian Assange into a Bond villain. And to do it, to accomplish that, they made him gay. Yeah. So it, it's, yeah, I, that was that that was that where he's just like, well, Mr. Bond, I see that your your psychological evaluation. And it's, so- and it's there's the scene where he flirts with him, and it's kind of a cheap. There's kind of a cheap escape button they press where James Bond is like, "How do you know I haven't already?" had sex with a man and i'm like sorry you have to have shown that by now yeah you have to show us <laughs> one of james bond's side boyfriends and i believe it sure yeah james bond had a boyfriend whatever he's been at war he's out there you get horned up i need to hear i need to either see what happened or have their hold them his old lover in him where they're like ah ha ha remember the old days <laughs> yeah. we don't talk about it anymore but how about another shot yeah here here's my wife here's my wife you know, like those real guys do in real life. So in the John Oliver version, you end with a a, uh, a point that you sort of had ended in different versions, which was sort of like, it, it's a gay terrorist based on which gay terrorist was this based on? And uh, like, it's yes. like, who started all, what are all these gay people that start wars? Yeah. Yeah. That was, that, that, that annoyed me that there was, and believe, and this is a great movie. I'm, this is a great movie. I am not, I like. All kinds of movies that I have problems with. Sure. I want to make that clear. I'm not an ideological purist about art. Um, I like things that are wrong. But yes, I mean, he's blowing up buildings. He's hacking. He's clearly an Assange-type figure. Anonymous, Assange, even though it's not kind of what they do. But then he's blowing up stuff. He's killing people. I'm sorry, and this is this goes to the heart of, of a lot of gay yeah. villains when they're when they are when they turn deadly. That's not 
that's a rarely a problem. Yeah. Uh, there's a, few, a couple of gay serial killers, I guess, out Andrew Cunanan or whatever, the Versace, the guy who killed Versace, uh, gay on gay crime. Sure. But like, there's not, not the the big killers in the world are not gay. Not enough for there to be a cottage industry of yes. Creative. <laughs> not enough for it to be a stereotype. Yeah. That there's the watch out for this powerful gay. Yeah, the real bad guys are people like um, James Bond or Dick Cheney. In the real world, people who the people who kill the most people are straight, yeah. always. Straight men, in particular. Uh, we'll be back with more James Adomian after this word from our sponsor. Did you know your teeth move as you get older? I mean, I didn't. And if you want to get your teeth fixed, the last thing you want to do is wear braces. That's why I'm happy to tell you about Candid, the clear alternative to braces. Candid is an orthodontist who is licensed in your state to create a plan for you. And Candid only uses experienced orthodontists, not any of those amateur orthodontists you find on the streets, in your local parks, floating on a houseboat in the river. They even create a 3D preview of what the final results will look like. Once you approve your 3D preview, Candid creates a custom clear liner that will be sent directly to you. That means no hassle of having to go to an orthodontist's office. Candid costs 65% less than braces. You can save thousands of dollars and have straighter, brighter teeth in an average of just six months. So, if you're listening, you're just one step away from getting straighter, brighter teeth. Learn more at candidco.com slash goodone and use the code goodone to get $75 off. That's candidco.com slash goodone. Code goodone for $75 off. We're back with James Adomian. You often play sort of hyper-masculine characters or like clearly very straight characters that though they present as what is sort of normal or good, are clearly actually evil, right? So like Sebastian Gorka or even your George Bush. I feel like there's uh, an undercurrent of your work is sort of like these traditional passing people that are actually sort of getting away with the worst things. I do make fun of a lot of masculine people. Part of it is, is I feel like I really did a lot of the gay villain stuff and it's out there. Yeah. It's just I've left it out there as just my thing. And I feel like I have to address, there's all these people that are in the news that I have to address. And I also don't want to appear that I am femme shaming through no fault of my own. I have what people think of as like a deep voice or a masculine voice. Well, you definitely have a deep voice. I think so, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> my normal ag- speaking voice is a deep voice. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to be perceived as femme shaming. So I have to be careful if I'm making fun of someone who's gay, yeah. it's not about, I'm not just falling into the same trap that I've yeah. been criticizing. That's another reason why uh, the gay villains worked, I think, was that I was talking about fictional characters rather than real people. Yeah. And when I'm taking down real people, I guess most people out there worth taking down are st- straight men. So that's, so when it's oppositional, I guess I kind of generally focus on that more. Uh, even though my stand-up is a very gay stand-up act, it's very interesting that a lot of my characters are not. You mentioned the sort of whatever the idea of a traditional masculine-sounding voice. And there's, at least on your album, there's another joke about having sort of an inner gay voice and that you will sort of lean more effeminate. Well, yeah, that's my real life. Yeah. That's my real life. And you know, I'm not the only person who 
has talked about this, but yeah. people have different mannerisms and different shared languages and different ways of speaking from between different friend groups. Yeah. And code code switching is a thing that exists for everybody. You talk mm-hmm. to your parents different than you talk to your friend. Yes, but it and is, I noticed and, that at some point that I am an extreme code switcher. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, I, 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 it dawned on me at some point, not that long ago, where I'm like, "Oh shit!" I think it's something to do with the fact that I'm like always, um, my ears are always open to be listening to people yeah. intently and deeply that I find myself listening so much and like sort of accidentally subconsciously mirroring uh, people's tone or the way they talk and stuff. So I realized like, oh fuck, I do have, I do have an inner gay voice and I do have like, I I, I sort of present myself differently to different audiences. When you notice that about yourself, it's funny too, I guess. Um, I I guess it's always funny to make fun of yourself whenever you have a chance. You've talked about how this joke has worked in front of sort of every audience, it works in different types of audiences um, to sort of. I would never say any joke of mine. Or not everybody has it, always worked. It has in a every higher audience. success. Yes, it's a higher it success. It has a high batting average. Um, and you know, I've interviewed a, a good amount of a, a gay comedian, and I think they all sort of have their own version of striking a balance of not doing gay material explicitly for straight audiences, but trying, to, as every comedian does, trying to do material that appeals to. You know, you're trying to communicate to different people. Yes. What is sort of your take on the balance, your version of trying to figure out what is comfortable for you? Well, with this bit, this was a this was a bit that I did for over two years, probably three years re- regularly as a closer on the road. So this was a bit that that got taken to a lot of places. It played all the alternative shows in Los Angeles and all the alternative shows in New York. It played in the clubs comedy clubs in LA and New York which are is a different vibe yeah. in those cities it played at festivals around the country which is where comedy fans show up it played at comedy clubs as a headliner in cities around the country where you attract an audience of people who do not know who you are who are there because it's comedy it's and comedy it- yes and they heard you were good or the club said you were good yeah and it has played uh, in v- very liberal audiences to the point where they were uptight. It-, it has played in rowdy audiences. It has played in audiences that are arms folded. It has played uh, for audiences that are conservative, uh, either in mannerisms or in politics. And it's worked in all of those kinds of audiences yeah. all over the country and in, in, in other countries as well. I've even I did that bit in countries where it's technically illegal to have sex a man have sex with a man, yeah. uh, not enforced but still technically illegal. I think Patton Oswalt wrote something about this once, but I think it's a, it's it makes for strong joke writing and strong comedy in general if it is practiced in front of different audiences. Basically, all of any bit that I do for any amount of time has gone through a gauntlet of doing all the gay shows. And so it has to be, I mean, my act has gone through all the gay shows. The Akbar show here in LA, the West Hollywood brunch at the comedy store. And like my act, there's, and and so I'm sure I can, I can lean more gay depending on how many minutes I have. Uh, I could get to the gay faster if I know the audience is going to get it ahead of time. And then everything has also had to work for a more conservative a Republican, right-wing, Christian, 
uh, audiences as they come out or like drunken right wing straight people that aren't necessarily religious, but still homophobic people. This bit has had to work in an audience of people that, you know, they're the people that say faggot. Uh, and it has to work in a way that doesn't sell myself out. That doesn't sell out my people. Yeah. I don't want to pan. I don't want to be like us gays. We're awful. Right. I mean, you can do that and make it work. I'm not going to speak generally, like, yeah. but it has to work in a way that it's making them laugh and also changing their mind or showing them something from another point of view. And it also has to work. It has to work at home. It has to work on the road. It has to work for people that agree with me and people who don't. Not every bit fulfills all those things, but I really like this bit because it did. Yeah. Oddly enough, one of the best shows I had in those early days of my stand-up career was in Roswell, Georgia. I don't even remember the name of the venue. And overall, the weekend was terrible. Roswell is suburban Georgia. Yeah, yeah. All 100% conservative Christian audience with their shirts tucked in. One of the shows that weekend crushed, killed. It, sh- it shouldn't have, yeah. but did. And I-, I-, I remember that. I remember like that was sort of like indicative of other experiences I had where that gay villain's bit was like, uh, to me, a personal anthem about my sexuality that I, I, and it was, I blasted it wherever I went for years. Yeah. It was partly motivated because I felt like, um, I thought, thought that mm, people should take that into account. Yeah. When they, when if they're a parent and they start to realize that their kid is gay, maybe there's something you should... And when they see me and they know, they remember they've been to a show of a gay comedian, they've laughed at it. At, <laughs> at the show, not me. Not sure, yeah. it. That they've laughed at him, that they've laughed at the comedian, they've laughed at the show. If a kid of theirs comes out as gay, if their nephew or niece comes out as gay, uh, someone else in their family, maybe... We don't have to have the flipping out, violent, crying, tearing, cutting off, disowning, screaming, how dare you, you betrayed me. Maybe it doesn't have to all be that. Mm -hmm. And it's not just me. There's other people doing the same thing. And they are, and, and it is just telling people you don't have to have the worst possible reaction. Um, you might remember me years later. Uh, a gay man that came into town and made you laugh in a way that you didn't expect. And maybe you will consider that as you live the rest of your life. It it makes me think, I, I saw one interview that in the, they described like comedian and activist James Adomian. And I thought it was really interesting because I... Who said that? I don't remember. It, I've never I, described myself I know, as an activist. Again, you've never described yourself, but it was very interesting to see someone describe you that because I think a lot of comedians... I think rightfully are like, what we are doing is not activism. We can maybe point to someone and go, activism over there. Like, the, it can give people the vo- vocabulary for certain things to, to, but... Well, I've done activism before, and it's not a fertile place to do comedy. Yeah. The activist audiences are often the worst. Even the people that I'm like, my side, that I agree with, because they're angry. Yeah. They're angry, and they want to jump in and give their opinion, and that's just not the way comedy yeah. works. I, I guess my main question is, as you're saying— Not that they're bad people. It's just being in an activist space or whatever 
is not yeah no i think if they if an activist was at a comedy show they can enjoy it but an activist in an activism show yeah, whatever don't, you don't you don't want to have <laughs> you, you don't want to have a comedian on before the big rally how intention driven are you you're like i want my obviously your goal is to be funny but like yeah laughs first control the audience seconds and then have a point third probably yeah. maybe actually i would even say laughs first control the audience second um, look hot third, <laughs> uh, have a point fourth. Good. That's fair. Maybe I'd even bump it down to fifth place and I would throw in there, um, get laid, <laughs> make a bunch of money yeah, fifth or sixth. Yeah. Got it. Have a point should be in there, but I don't think it should ever be the first thing Yeah, because I, I do, uh, ruthlessly maintain my right as an artist to flip back and forth between saying the right thing and saying the wrong yeah. thing. And sometimes you say the wrong thing to illustrate that it's the wrong thing. Yeah. And also, um, I have to be able to do silly stuff too. Yeah. You've talked in an interview about a certain divide between comedy and sort of gay people or certain, you know, and I, I, I've i talked to different comedians, different comedians about at a time an aversion for a certain divide that exists. There's sort of, there are gay spaces and there'd be some gay people that go to comedy shows. And I, I think... Yes, this is talked about a yes, lot. this is talked... But and I would say... I Guy recent... Branham is making a documentary about it, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, about the the, the unique struggles that gay comedians have had. Because I, I was going to... He has the quote, which is, gay audiences either want go-go boys or drag queens because they either want to sexualize or completely not sexualize. Right. But I would say, over the last couple of years, at least from my observed there's been a huge shift. You've mentioned, like, where they're in Bell House, Union Hall, or East Side LA comedy shows, you're seeing gay, more gay audiences, more gay shows that are um, not necessarily presented as, like, this is the gay hour. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed a shift? I mean, like, I think it, it's a yes, thing that's been... it's exist- happening slower than I wanted it to, and it sort of breaks my heart that it didn't happen in time for me to be young. <laughs> and enjoy it. And I will always say this when we're talking about the struggles we have as gay comedians, gay people in comedy, um, we're standing on the shoulders of people who fought other struggles, many of them more difficult. We're standing on the shoulders of performers and artists, uh, comedy comedians who lived through the AIDS crisis, who, who didn't survive the AIDS crisis, who, I, I mean, talk to Scott Thompson about the kind of homophobia he faced in the, starting out doing stand-up as an openly gay performer in the 80s. Uh, it's disgusting what he was put through. And I don't want to speak for him, but it's a very interesting story. I mean, I mean, it's not just him. You hear this story from a lot of people, and it drove people into the closet, was the way he was treated by other comedians on stage and off stage was disgusting. Because it was acceptable to just make those jokes. And that comes and goes in waves. There's more, there's cycles where there's more offensive, bad boy, uh, fuck you comedy. And then there's more, you know, anti-authoritarian, fuck the bad guys. You know, it goes in cycles, it goes in waves. And there's people, I mean, it gets very complex to try to talk about it all as one cohesive theory of everything. There's obviously also, as a comedian, purely as a comedian, there's comedians that have come before us and fought all kinds of struggles uh, as far as um, free speech on stage. You used to be able to arrest uh, Lenny Bruce. The NYPD is is still, to its shame to this day, 
uh, responsible for the downfall and death of Lenny Bruce. Yeah, according to in in many of our opinions, um, they har- they harassed him for the comedy he was yeah, doing yeah, yeah. on stage. We have lived through an interesting time in the last ten to twenty years, where it all broke open, and all of us played a little part. All of us played a little part, and we helped each other. And I'm not going to say that every gay comedian is best friends with every other gay comedian. (laughs) You know, people have closer friends. People know someone better than someone else. People are involved in different scenes or something. But we do have a great respect for each other. Yeah. We do have a great respect for each other, seeing what we've been through and seeing that it's not over. Seeing that hilariously, after all this shit, we are just now seeing the first, for the first time, gay people. Comedians are getting TV shows that are being announced on on Deadline and stuff. Yeah. They're not even out yet. They're just, it's just, there's so many things that are just happening for the first time that could have happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, yeah. 50 years ago. It didn't have to be like this. We had to sacrifice some of our careers in order to clean it up. All gay comedians, I think at this point, their careers are... It's impossible to say that they're not less than what they would have been if they had not been gay yeah, or if they had somehow achieved being in the closet or something. The industry still punishes gay people for being gay and it punishes gay people for being out. Uh, That's the same for other queer people as well or similar for them. It's been described to me a couple of times people have said that we're living in a golden age of gay comedy specifically a golden age of gay stand-up comedy which is true the list of names that you could rattle off is astounding you couldn't it's impossible to do uh like a a great festival without great gay stand-up acts that are in many cases getting set of the night in many cases doing as good if not better than straight acts on the same shows and everybody knows it but what's very interesting, and, and it's broken through in podcasts yeah. completely, and you're starting to see it break through into television and movies, but my God, it's slow. Yeah. I thought it would have happened by now. And it's given me like a, like a, sh- like a shock, like a, a desensitization that I, I might never get over. Like, uh, I can't believe it's taken this long. Yeah. So little of what has happened in live comedy has reflected on television or in movies. It broke through onto the internet because there's not as many gatekeepers, but with the number of gay headliners, and I want to talk specifically about gay men, specifically gay men are held back and nobody speaks for gay men um, because uh, 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 the patriarchy is uniquely threatened by gay men and male homosexuality. Where are the stand-up specials? Where are the castings? Where the romantic comedies? Billy Eichner just announced the first major gay romantic comedy that he's making. Yeah, I believe with Judd Apatow. That's not a that's not a gay cinema production. And I, I and I love I love the gay cinema rom coms like Trick, Billy Holly, Billy's Hollywood Screen Kiss. From when I was like coming of age, those sure. were like the movies I loved. But. They had zero impact on the wider culture outside of gay film festivals, let's be honest. Where, where are those movies? And why, and why are straight people such babies that it's taken them this long to be able to sit through a gay actor playing a straight part or a gay love story that's maybe the main story where there's sidekick straight characters? 
Why why have we had why have why have they been such babies that it's taken this long? And frankly, uh, put unnecessary weights on people's careers. Yeah, we have broken through a lot of barriers. I think we're entering the phase now where it's time to run up the scoreboard and it's time to cash in. Yeah, and it's time to show people what they have been preventing us from showing people. And it's time for what has been long known on live stage. I raise my voice because I do get angry about it. What has long been known everywhere on live stage is it is time for it to be understood on television. Hopefully before the medium of television itself (laughs) collapses. And it would be nice to see it in movies too. This this joke is, it's really, it's one of, I was thinking, re-listening to it. I was like, this is one of the, it's a really great thing. It shifted in my opinion consciousness though i think you do not get credit for anything it didn't get but i I think you it made an impact among comedians and comedy fans yeah but i think (laughs) i think i think there's ripples of it that made it so it's a trope that people didn't know existed but now even if they don't know where it started but um i feel like when things are so when creative people do things that are sort of exceptional in terms of they are exceptions to how really special they are and they work everywhere they either can feel like a culmination of something or the start of something it's like oh this is all the things i was doing built up to this or this is a roadmap that i will continue for you was this joke did it feel like a culmination or did it feel like i have an understanding of myself as an artist that i did not have before doing it god that's a very interesting question because i could see it both ways for me, it was uh, it was a great achievement, and it was a great culmination in me coming into my own as an artist who spoke about his own life and point of view. Ironically, it's like my oh, talking about my life is talking about cartoons. <laughs> sure, but like I'm out, and I'm gay, and I'm funny, and I don't think that we're the bad guys. Yeah, I mean that's what it boils down to. Or it's like a quest. It's like are we really the bad guys? And also, it's been a jumping off point for me further because it was my first on the road. It was my first great closer. And closers are hard to write. Yeah. Closers almost have to happen to you. The other closing jokes I've had have been stories about something going terribly wrong. Yeah. And I mean, I mean on the road, not like me doing 10, 15, 20 minutes in LA or New York. I mean, like when I'm on the road doing an hour, you got to have a big. So it was a big, big scenery chewing way to get off stage. And I've always had that in the back of my head, like going forward, no longer doing this bit, doing other bits, doing other bits that are talking about being gay. I always am like, is it as funny as the gay villains bit? Does it kill the room like the gay villains bit would? Is it gay like the gay villains bit is? It should probably be most of those things. Yeah. Is it a command attention? Is it a, 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 And so it's kind of, it's been like a blueprint energy-wise for how to end a show for me. <laughs> uh, so that sound means it's time for our final segment. It's a laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's uh-huh. a laughing round. Uh-huh. So that's why that sound existed. Okay. It's a great laugh, by the way. When you get it, that's when you get a laugh like that. It's a one it's, guy slapping his knee. There's three. I think it was a it was a combination of three people. I can't remember. It's three guests of the show's laughs. I can't remember who it was. 
Um, is there an impression you wish you created? You wish that you it's a new dimension where this impression that exists that another person sort of cracked you can now have and you will have as yours and you will not be stealing their impression. There's an endless number of people I am impressed with stand-ups yeah. and uh, improvisers and sketch comedy people who are just incredibly talented comedians uh, who do these amazing impressions. Some of them only do like one or two. Yeah. Some of them can do many, many like I do. Um, Heather Ann Campbell does this great Ayn, Ayn Rand impression. And you're like, why would you do Ayn Rand at this time? At this time, <laughs> when you see her do it, you understand why. Yeah. It's just, it's just soaking in someone's awful point of view, and um, the timing, and the timing, the timing is just perfect. Uh, Kevin Pollak was iconic uh, when I was growing up. It's good that you mentioned him. Uh, I, I, my, my brother and I loved him. Yeah, uh, we'd see him on Comedy Central or whatever, if, wherever he whatever, was. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, I guess it's pre predates Comedy Central, but uh, the Comedy Channel, Comedy yeah. Channel, maybe. <laughs> um, I think Jerry Minor is uh, is the highest caliber, highest class of impressionist. I always try to work with him whenever I can. Uh, uh, Drew Drogi, Drew Drogi is a, another uh, gay comedian, and Drew Drogi is um, the best, yeah. as good as it gets. They do a um, drag version of um, the Golden Girls at Casita del Campo here twice a year. And it is the funniest show I've ever seen. And it's a small little room. And I see it. I, I don't see all of them. I see it. They always bring it back with different yeah. Golden Girls episodes. And their impressions are so funny. Some of them are accurate. Some of them are exaggerated. Some of them are just goofy, funny in and of themselves. And... uh and I, I mean, I, I love being able to sit back and watch it yeah. rather than just always doing it. The last thing I'd like to do, and if you'll indulge, I would like to do two versions of it, uh, is a thing called an impression chain, which is you do one impression of a person saying the name of the next person you're going to do the impression of saying and so on. Okay. All right. So here we go. Let me, uh, this is, uh, I, wow, I can't, I'm going to try this, huh? Yeah. Okay. So I guess I'll start off with one of my favorite uh, stand-ups. All the... These are all influential uh, comics on me that I think I, I can do an impression of. So, uh, <laughs> so first is this great uh, stand-up and podcaster, Mark Marin. Yeah, man, fuck. I don't know, we had issues back in the day, but, were, you know, he's, he's a bitter Buddha. It's Eddie fucking Pepitone. That's right. I'm up here doing the work. And down there, you got Todd Glass. I'm up here making people laugh when there's no reason they should. And yet Todd Glass, he gets the headline spot. Honestly, seriously, what if I thought... And honestly, seriously, I don't think this, but honestly, what if I thought... Seriously. And I swear to God, I swear to George Carlin. What if I thought, and I, seriously, I don't think this, but what if I thought, what if I seriously, what if I honestly thought that it was going to be Andy Kindler? <laughs> What's wrong? Hey, what? Hey, folks. Hey, guess what? What's wrong? You're not, you're not hyped up for the next performer? You're not, you, it's your, Matt, Matt, Matt Bronger. Matt Bronger. Am I Bronger? Am I bright? Is there a third? Is there another pun that I could shoehorn? 
And what's wrong? You don't like the last name material? Hmm? Matt Bronger? Hey, hey, come to my Bronger show. Hmm? Is it or a third form of showbiz related? Hmm? It's unbelievable. It's great. Seriously, it's the most awesome. It's like you got this guy. He's like. He's out there, and you're going like, wow, I'll take five of them. You think, you think you've got it, and there he is, wow, unbelievable, Lewis Black. And then, and then you look yourself dead in the eyes, and there he is, staring back at you, a real fuck in the mirror, and that's Kyle Kinane. Uh, well, you figured it out. At least you look at yourself and go, well, whew, whew, at least it's not Mark Marin. Fuck, and it, I started it off, and it, it, the dump's on me. That's great. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can listen to James Adomian's low-hanging fruit on Stitcher or purchase it wherever you download music and comedy. New episodes of The Underculture come out every Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. Follow James on Twitter and Instagram at jadomian. Good One is produced by Mike Comte with production assistance from Marissa Melnick and research help from Serena Devi. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars. Please. And hey, if you know anyone who might, I don't know, like the podcast, what the heck, maybe tell them. You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new episode and a new joke. Have a good one. That was a HeadGum Podcast.